Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. To get you through the holiday week, check out theringer.com for our July streaming recommendations, analysis on the U.S. women's national team during the World Cup, and takeaways from an exciting start to NBA free agency. Also, we'll be sticking to our regular podcast schedule, so make sure to tune in to your favorite shows throughout the week as usual. David, a story about the Democratic debates on FoxNews.com quoted Ringer editor-at-large Brian Curtis and media guru David Shoemaker. Oh, yeah. What I want to know is, is this the first time you've been quoted by Fox News? <laughs> um, I, oh, God. Uh, the answer is no. I mean, I don't know if I've ever been quoted in a story before. I did appear on Fox and Friends. Little known fact. Wow. Uh, not six years ago or so, maybe more. See if someone can track down the tape. I uh, had a book out called The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling. It's still available on Amazon.com and bookstores around the world. And uh, um, I had a weird run of conservative media attention. I think we launched with a New York Post excerpt, and I was on Imus. Uh, I mean, I, at, the, at the time, that was kind of distinctly in the conservative uh, sphere. A lot of different conservative papers. But yeah, I was on Fox & Friends. Um, and you were in had in a, studio. You were on the set with those people in studio with pancake makeup all over my bald head. Yeah, and we and uh, I got to sit down next to Brian Kilmeade on some plush chairs, and he he asked me all about the book. It was pretty. It was pretty fun. You've got a lot to answer for. I'm a fan, <laughs> Fox and Friends. David Shoemaker would do anything to sell a book. <laughs> I suggested that that was the first time I put it in their ear that they should uh, that they should you know suggest to Donald Trump he should run for president. <laughs> We are the large gurus of media podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to the Press Box. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of the Ringer here. On today's pod, we're going to hit Donald Trump at the DMZ, a school shooting imposter, NBA free agency, how to leave your journalism job, plus that overworked Twitter joke of the week. But first, David, let's get back to the fallout of the Democratic debates, which were last week. First off, uh, I spent an hour on Thursday night mispronouncing Senator Harris's name. It is Kamala, not Kamala. And I knew that. Anyway, thanks to a listener, Gray, for calling us out on that. The big story of night two, though, was Kamala Harris challenging Joe Biden on his happy talk about working with segregationists and his position on school busing. A uh, This was my favorite thing, I think. A senior Biden advisor said right after the debate that Harris was doing, quote, exactly what Trump wants. And then another Biden advisor denied that the campaign had made that statement. But both the statement and the <laughs> denial were on Twitter at the same time. So that's uh, what? Yeah, I know. <laughs> the Biden campaign continues to uh, sail right along. By the way, do you enjoy how every media entity had to call the Biden-Harris bit a heated exchange. That's the only vocabulary we're allowed to use. Yeah, that was that was kind of odd. I know it didn't feel that he, heated is not the word that I would have used to describe it, although, you know, in the moment, maybe that's just the word that you lean on. I thought the boxing metaphor was better, right? Staggered, stunned Biden. I think that was more, it was more that than heated exchange, but uh, we'll let him get away with that. One answer that uh, Harris gave that bled into the coverage on Friday was that she raised her hand when Lester Holt asked about getting rid of private insurance. Uh, but you've got to listen closely to Lester Holt's question. Here it is as he asked it Thursday night. 
We're going to turn to the issue of health care right now. I'd really try to understand where there may or may not be daylight between you. Many people watching at home have health insurance coverage through their employer. Who here would abolish their private health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? Just a show of hands to start off with. Did you hear the slight confusion there? Where he said, yeah. he, he starts out saying, many people watching at home have health insurance through their employer. Who here would abolish their private health insurance in favor of the government-run plan? So there, I, he's apparently talking about everybody watching. But okay. it's when I heard that question live, I thought he was saying, candidates, which of you would give up your private insurance to sure. take a government-run plan? Which is a pretty easy thing to agree to, whether or not you endorse immediate Medicare for all. Yeah. Kamala Harris put her hand up, and she and Bernie Sanders only <laughs> put their hands up. And then the day after... She had to clean it up because she realized what she'd agreed to. So here's what she said on Morning Joe. So once and for all, do you believe that private insurance should be eliminated in this country? No. You don't? No, I but do not. But you raised your hand last but night. But the question was, would you give up your private insurance for that option? And I said yes. Oh, I think I you do. heard it differently than others then. I, probably, because that's what I heard. Questions but, they have to raise yeah, but I will tell you. By the way, can I'm we have a rule, by the way, in future debates? No more hand raised. Yeah. Oh, I so the only thing we can agree on, David, is that MSNBC didn't do a good job with the debate. Even Joe Scarborough <laughs> thinks that raised hand questions are a bad idea. But but am I wrong that that was confusing and strange? No, it was incredibly confusing. But but I don't know that raised hand questions are a bad idea is the way to come out of this. It's raised hand questions if they if they're in, if they're impossible to understand are a bad idea. But I think we talked about this on the night. I mean, raising and they're also a little bit like. You know, elementary school, a little bit, you know, there's there's a, there's an inherent silliness to, a you know, 10 grown people raising their hand to answer a question. But at the same time, it seemed I felt like that was the only time you get we got anything approaching a real answer for half the night, except for the few like, you know, pet issues that each candidate really wanted to talk about. Yeah. Or that at least you could distinguish between the candidates. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't have been a huge deal with Harris, except. She has been down this road before. Earlier in the campaign, she called for eliminating private insurance, and then she walked it back. And that's what led to her big reboot back in May. And it's a good reminder that when everybody says, yeah, why hasn't Kamala Harris, why hasn't she been a top-tier candidate? Why hasn't she been yes. among the leaders? It was because her campaign, after starting with a huge crowd in Oakland, raising a lot of money, didn't go particularly well. And she yep. didn't seem ready. And her her team was worried that she was sort of kowtowing to the left or the lefty elements in the party a little bit too much instead of, and you notice now she says the word prosecutor, like every five words, she, mm -hmm. she is, she is, she is back to the prosecutor, Kamala Harris. I'm going to yeah. prosecute the case against Trump. I'm going to worry about, you know, whatever kind of, uh, you know, whatever kind of cognitive dissonance this creates with, with other people in, in the democratic coalition. But this is, this is me now I'm leaning mm -hmm. into it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that uh, I mentioned this some um, after her performance. I mean, she was exceptional in the debate on in terms of you know uh, debating <laughs> goes. I mean, she <laughs> yes. she she came she came away from that looking really good, and, and all the reactions to the to the night to the polls and everything else seemed to seem to uh, reflect that. But I but I think that um, well, for one thing, you know, th there's no time in a debate, at least in a ten, certainly not in a ten-person debate, for someone to come from behind like that, and for anyone else to have an adequate response. You know, no one's going to be ready for. It's one thing to 
you know, to, to go to the boxing metaphor, it's one thing to, to be, you know, ready for a sucker punch or a, or a you know, a, even an uppercut you didn't see, you didn't plan for. But it's another thing to, you know, when that punch comes from like, is like someone waylaying you from behind out of the audience or something like that. So it's, you know, I think that she's certainly going to be a target moving forward. And there's going to be a lot more attention on her campaign and the same degree to which we've sort of just painfully rolled our eyes at the Biden campaign, you know, so far, if Harris has any more, you know, screw-ups along the lines of the one she's already had even, I think that those are going to reflect a whole lot more negatively on her as a candidate. Another dynamic that's really interesting is the revenge of the moderates within the Democratic Party. You Mm -hmm. pointed out very correctly that if you watched the second debate or even the first one last week, it seemed like Bernie Sanders had won, even if he was sort of a, you know, smaller and sort of lost figure within that whole debate. His ideas had been broadly adopted on the stage. And then we saw a big piece in the New York Times this weekend with people like Rahm Emanuel being quoted and saying, this is not going to win the presidential election. I know those are all Rahm Emanuel and those guys are all figures of fun on Twitter, but that those kinds of people are big and important rank and file Democrats within the Democratic Party. And the idea that this camp, you know, that all these candidates are going to drift way to the left uh, is not going to go down with a lot of people. And I just think whether it's Harris, whether it's Biden's future, all of that is going to be refracted through that lens. And that that to me is one of the most interesting stories going forward, because a lot of people are not going to be on the train of, hey, let's just do, you know, <laughs> Medicare for all and all the other things we heard about the other night. Yeah, I just I mean, th- this is maybe beside the point, but I just feel like the biggest problem with the argument that people like Rahm Emanuel are making when they say that kind of stuff is that it's Rahm Emanuel and people like that making it that like the like the least convincing messenger is possible <laughs> for this or the people who have been there and done that before. I mean, this is this is what the what the base of the Democratic Party is kind of agitating against. It's not I mean, sure, there's Donald Trump, sure there's the Republicans, but it's the sort of the status quo, the machine that like, you know that kept Bernie out of the, out of the general election four years ago. You know I mean? These are the sort of, it just, it just seems like when somebody, when somebody like, you know, comes in, tries to come in off the top rope with a, let me tell you how these elections really work thing. It's just gonna, it's just gonna infuriate people even more. I agree. But don't we think that, I don't think he's wrong, but I, I mean, I don't think he's necessarily wrong, but can, like, if you think, if you know so much about politics and like consider that you're the worst messenger for that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not arguing that he's, that he's right or that certainly I want more Rahm Emanuel in my life in any possible way, but don't we think he's much more of a comic figure on Twitter than he is within the democratic party? I mean, I understand, like, I just think we're reading, you know, constant, that guy gets just torn up on Twitter every single day, every, t- every time he speaks. This is true. But yeah. I just don't think, I mean, you know, again, like, and I'm, and nobody is, nobody's going back and saying, "Whoa, wasn't he a great mayor of Chicago? I'm, I'm not saying any of that, but I think these people are more powerful and influential within the democratic coalition among donors, among people like that, than we realize. And oh, that sure. if you just read liberal Twitter all day that you might realize. And it's, again, it's just, I'm just saying there is a battle. There is a not secret battle for what's the Democratic Party going to be and what's the Democratic Party candidate going to be like? And yeah. I'm just going to be interested to see how that plays out. Meanwhile, in Joe Biden land, David, uh, Dan Diamond at Politico flagged this bit. Biden was speaking at a fundraiser in Seattle and the pool report noted Biden suggested public sentiment has come far on gay rights issues in a short period of time, <laughs> saying five years ago, if someone at a business meeting in Seattle, quote, made fun of a gay waiter, end quote, people would just let it go. The audience vocally pushed back at that, saying, not in Seattle. Um, So that was a weird moment. 
Biden also in Chicago this last week defending what he called his lifetime commitment to civil rights, of course, after the Harris Exchange. Let's listen to how he did it. We got to recognize that kid wearing a hoodie may very well be the next poet laureate and not a gangbanger. Ladies and gentlemen, there are too many black men, and I might add women, in prison. Okay. <laughs> I, that is the first I heard that. That is amazing. Yeah. I mean, just top-notch work there. Cory Booker uh, came back and, of course, asked why it's a <laughs> why it's a problem that the kid wears the hoodie in the first place, whether or not he becomes poet laureate. Um, I just, I have a feeling, I mean, we're in a weird place with Biden because we're also in a place where the footage we're seeing of him, whether it's K-File or one of these people unearthing it, is inevitably like Biden in 1982 or 1978 yeah. talking about busing. And it just mm-hmm. reminds people. I mean, it cannot be good for a political campaign to you to have 30-year-old footage of you playing nonstop, no matter what it's about. And yeah. it does not exactly scream the future. But... um. I feel he is in a really, really weird place right now. We haven't gotten the Biden reboot, though. Or if we have, I've missed it. You know, the huddling with advisors and that kind of stuff. I mean, I think it's really, uh, well, I think we were about two degrees off from it, like the night of the debate. Like as you were making that, as you were making that joke or that proclamation that on on our podcast, I felt like there was, they're, they're, they're deliberately getting, I think they're avoiding the idea of the reboot because that would show defeat or weakness. But we're not that far away from it in, in the way it's been used in the past. But also the you know the historical footage thing is a, is a double edged sword. I mean, he talks about you know he, he talks about his civil rights record, and obviously there's a there is a degree to which you know like Bernie Sanders marching for civil rights in those old photos is certainly going to help him in some ways. You know, I guess Bernie's not never tried to really disguise his age. You know, he's never tried no. to be cool. Um, but there's there's some ways that that history can help you. But I think that that uh, that you're right. In this case, it's definitely not a, not a benefit. Finally, one of the big debate stories was the tangle between Texans Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro. Two days wow. after the debate, Castro was headed to Austin for a scheduled event, and what some saw as a big footing exercise, Beto also went to Austin and scheduled an event a few blocks away from Castro. There's only <laughs> there's only room enough in this state for one charismatic outsider. That's going to be me. Uh, Castro, speaking to reporters, said a few months ago, they were writing me up as the other Texan, but that is no more. I am the Texan in this race. And O'Rourke, for his part, his campaign sent out a release noting that according to a poll of Texas voters, Beto has a three-point lead over Joe Biden and a 25-point lead over fellow Texan Julian Castro. To just... Slip that in there. That was that was that was important to note in the press release. I think that's that's also what you said when the Ringer hired Jonathan Sharks. You were just like, I am the one Texan. <laughs> the Ringer.com. Yeah, it's like who's who's the real Texan here? That was uh, this is I feel like this is going to be a subplot that is ultimately about nothing. <laughs> Neither one of these guys are going to win, but the battle for the for who gets to represent Texas in the Democratic primary is one I am all for. And I want to know, you know, who who can get to Bucky's first and get a photo op? <laughs> yeah, I think that the I think that I mean the 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 notion of like delivering states in a in a national election I think is a little bit overblown. I think that you know we sh- that's one of the lessons we might have should have learned four years ago. Um, but it is kind of endearing to see two people fighting over the. Uh, the the potential ability to deliver the state of Texas that's not going to happen anyways. The AP found uh, one fan at the Beto event with a black t-shirt emblazoned with Beto days are coming. 
Uh, so add that to the strain pun column. Beto days are coming. He certainly yeah. hopes so. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Please send your nominees to at the press box pod. Uh, there were a bunch of them this week, and thank you very much for all of them. Uh, first, David, the world saw that wonderful photograph of Megan Rapino of the U.S. soccer team, arms outstretched, totally victorious, and somehow totally serene at the same time after mm-hmm. the Americans beat France 2-1 uh, in the World Cup semifinals. It was an overworked Twitter joke to use the photo and write, me when my inbox gets to zero. Thanks to Pickle Jar Hero for that one. Uh, David, free, NBA free agency went bonkers yesterday in predictable fashion. Yeah. Or an unpredictable fashion, I guess. A lot of players quickly signed, but one that didn't was the enigmatic Kawhi Leonard. Uh, it was an overworked Twitter joke to speculate on what rudimentary technology Leonard would finally use to announce his choice. For example, <laughs> Kawhi Leonard is so low-key, he's going to announce his decision soon via Western Union Telegram. He's going to fax his decision to an AM traffic and news radio station. He's going to announce by updating his LinkedIn profile. <laughs> and finally, have we considered the possibility that Kawhi was locked out of his Yahoo email account? Thanks to a bunch of people for that <laughs> one, including KL, Connor Weidgarten, Coleman Barton, Biso, Bill Hebel, and DK Metcalf's calf. That is a very how, inside NFL draft reference. Go ahead. How many of, how many of those were, were Jeff Foxworthy tweets? <laughs> I think if he, if, he, if he was aware of the Kawhi Leonard uh, decision-making process, he would have definitely had one. A uh, surprise in free agency was the Golden State Warriors trading for D'Angelo Russell. Uh, before he got good last season, Russell was best known, yeah. perhaps, for allegedly releasing a piece of video in which his teammate Nick Young appeared to talk about cheating on Iggy Azalea. Uh, to make room for Russell, the Warriors traded away Andre Iguodala, and it was an overworked Twitter joke to write, this isn't the first time D'Angelo Russell did Iggy wrong. Thanks to Vincent Orlack for that one. Uh, and this was kind of a layup, David, but why not? A big schadenfreude-rich news item last week was that the NRA is ending NRA TV and its association with Dana Loesch. Oh. Yeah, I know. Very sad. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write thoughts and prayers. Thanks to Anthony Galston, Paul J. Stevens, (laughs) Michael Mason, and uh, somebody else. Michael. Just Michael. That's the last name. (laughs) All right, David, time for the notebook dump. First item here I have is Trump at the DMZ. Uh, the president was at the G20 in Osaka on Friday. This this is just an amazing media story, I think, beyond the just obvious haha. So he's at the G20 and he tweets, I will be leaving Japan for South Korea while there. If Chairman Kim of North Korea sees this, I would like to meet him at the border DMZ just to shake his hand and say <laughs> hello. Parenthesis, question mark, close parenthesis, exclamation point. I can't. Did he post that on Twitter? Or was that on Craigslist Misconnections? I'm not exactly. <laughs> yeah, someone tweeted, is this Trump's live journal account? <laughs> that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. I remember I like I I I saw it on Twitter and still think it's a joke. I don't quit it. Yeah, it was but it, it worked. It worked. It good, did good work. They him. have uh Trump and Kim had their photo op at the border. And then after that, uh Trump sat with Kim and he said this. And I want to thank Chairman Kim, for something else. When I put out the social media notification, if he didn't show up, the press was going to make me look very bad. So you made us both look good, and I appreciate it. But we've developed a great relationship. Okay. So, David, help us dig out of this context of no context. 
Trump tweets an invitation to Kim to meet him at the DMZ. They have the photo op. And then his among his first remarks to the media afterwards, I am grateful to Mr. Kim for showing up and not making me look bad for this tweet I put out there. What do we what do we do with that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's the whole I mean it's just also like I if if I if I'm if I'm going to be slightly sympathetic, oh, you know, oh no. he did We've gotten to a point, I mean, I don't think there's any justification for any of this stuff, but we've certainly gotten to a point where he believes his own, Donald, President Trump, that is, believes, if he was ever joking about the media being an enemy, he certainly, he's bought into that, he's bought into that as the truth now. Um, and whatever, I mean, the fact that he sees these, he sees for, these like crazy foreign leaders as like better friends of his than, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial board is just, just sad on so many levels. Uh, let's talk NBA free agency. Kevin Draper mentioned this on Twitter, and I could not agree more, which was the weirdness of ESPN both covering free agency and then when Chris Middleton and Tobias Harris signed their contracts, tweeting out prefab Players' Tribune-style pieces about why they signed where they did. Yeah. A couple notes on this. When someone re-signs with their team, that's not actually the most interesting why I did it. That's like me. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I've, I've decided to... Keep working at the ringer. Well, you know, okay, you know. Let's, <laughs> thanks for the thanks for letting us know. Yeah. Also, the pieces themselves, Middleton's, as told to. I'm going to read a sentence. We have unfinished business here in Milwaukee. Dot dot dot. <laughs> the goal is wasn't to reach the Eastern Conference Finals. We're on a mission to to win a championship. And this is from Harris. We've got unfinished business, and I'm ready to commit to a long term vision of bringing a title to Philadelphia. It's the same thing. And it's the same thing they would say in a press conference anyway. We just we got the jump on the on the kind of like two minutes of unquotable stuff they would say when this contract gets officially announced. It's like I can understand ESPN seeing Woj out there clowning them on draft night and just being like, we need to get in the Woj business, you know, even if that means signing Wait, but a they competitor. Have They're in the Woj business. No, 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 I know. But before that happened, and I can understand them, I can understand, you know, them seeing... I mean, whatever else they could see. I mean, just they could say like, oh, we need to be doing more story. We need to be doing more long form stories like the ringer dot com or they we need to be doing, you know, that's not a, they made the opposite choice. But whatever. I mean, you can see them looking at competition and saying we need to do some of that and it making sense. It just is mind boggling that they were like, we need to get in that Players Tribune game because it's just like sacrificing. <laughs> I mean, if there's any if there's any ombudsman on duty over there, like it's just like it seems like such an odd sacrifice for such like a menial just accumulation of clicks off Twitter. But I guess, you know, I, I'm sure it builds relationships or whatever else too. So, you know, have at it, guys. Yeah, I'm 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 just for never doing these kind of stories. Just almost yeah. or almost never. But e- even if you admit, even if there's like, you argue, okay, there's one or two of them where there's some, some, you know, benefit News for doing you. them. Yeah, yeah, some, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got unfinished business is not a benefit. I just don't get that at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chris Almeida points out I would like this is sort of like the like the who's like whose side is God on argument I want to find somebody who signs with the team who, who like thinks there is no unfinished business yeah when they leave That's when they news. leave a team just be like yeah the, well the main reason I left the Golden State Warriors is because we are completely done with unfinished with all of our business <laughs> yeah, right. there was no business left unfinished well yeah I would just say like I, I just really wanted to get a lot of money and if we win a title that'd be a nice side benefit but this is, yeah. this is what I've been working for is a huge contract and <laughs> mission accomplished <laughs> 
Uh, Chris Almeida points out a media evolution at work this week. Uh, back in 2016, Kevin Durant, who just signed with the Nets, announced his uh, free agent pick via the Players' Tribune. And this year, he attempted to announce it via his own thing, which is the boardroom. Uh, so it was sort of like, yes. even the Players' Tribune was was too much of an outside media entity. I'm going to do it my own. I think he was actually scooped by Woj. Is that right? Mm-hmm. In his own thing. Kind of a weird intra-ESPN deal there, too. Speaking of Woj, uh, one thing he did this year was tweet out the agents' names. Did you know that a lot? Notice yes, that? Yes, I saw that. Do you have a theory for why he did that? I mean, uh, we, it's all transactional. We always knew is- it was the agents. That, you know, for, for anything, not just basketball, football. Yeah. We already knew it was the agents. I mean, listen, there, a, lot of, a lot of these guys have, a lot of the agents have taken a lot of junk this year. Rich Paul, um, Rich Kleiman in particular, their names have been out there a lot, but their names have been out there a lot, you know, and maybe there's, maybe there's other agents that see it, not just as a marketing tool to other basketball players, but like, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe there are other agents that want their own boardroom style TV shows or, you know, just want to. Want to have the sort of cachet that a, you know, Bill Simmons podcast guest might have, you know, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's, that's part of it. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a good theory. Varier kind of pointed this out when he was sitting in for you the other day, which was that if you use the term league sources or any anonymous sources, it makes a story mm-hmm. more interesting than if you just name who gave it to you. So listen, to, I've <laughs> just, here are two sample tweets and you tell me which one of these are both. This is from Woj. Tell me what sounds more interesting. Free agent guard Pat- Patrick Beverly has agreed to a three-year, $40 million deal to stay with the Clippers. League sources tell ESPN. Or Beverly agreed to a three-year, $40 million deal. His agent, Kevin Bradbury, tells ESPN. Now, doesn't the first one sound like a bigger deal? Yeah, sure. It sounds like a secret as opposed to, yeah, his agent just told me. People are talking about it. Yeah. You know, this, yeah, is, this, is, this has worked its way it worked its way around the, around the, the, uh, the telephone but line. But it's funny, right? Because they're the exact same story. And they're probably mm-hmm. gotten the exact same way, but one of them just sounds infinitely more like more of a secret than the other one, mm-hmm. which is really funny. And I, I just, somebody was, somebody and I were talking about that the other day. That's like, if you just, if you took all the on the record stuff you got and just put sources instead, I think you would just make your stories like 50% more interesting. Exactly. Everybody would be wondering who the sources are. It doesn't, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't, <laughs> the, the information would be exactly the same. Uh, Almeida also notes for us that the uh, we have a new tradition, which is that every NBA news cycle ends when Magic Johnson sends out a thuddingly obvious tweet. <laughs> we have reached this point in history. So after the Anthony Davis trade uh, to the Lakers, he says, great job by owner Jeannie Buss bringing AD to the Lakers. Laker Nation, the Lakers are back in the championship hunt, et cetera, et cetera. And then after the Lakers cleared cap room the other day to try to sign another free agent. Wow, wow, wow. What a trade. Big move by Jeannie and Rob, dot, 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 dot. This feels like when, you know, like a celebrity dies and we have all the heartfelt tributes of the people who actually know him and then the president weighs in, you know, yeah. Melania and I would love to extend our condolences to the family of Aretha Franklin. And then, you know, that the, the news, the news cycle is absolutely over. We've done the formalities. It does signal the end of the news cycle in a very, in a very precise way. But I do wish that Magic Johnson would just contribute his gifts to all manner of, of subjects and not just basketball. Like... <laughs> Like, sad to hear that the great artist Aretha Franklin has died. When you die, usually they embalm you and then bury you in a casket and dig you six feet under the ground <laughs> and people send you off. So sad. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. 
Uh, David, this from the Department of How the Media Sausage is Made, the TV show Inside Edition, which I'm not sure I knew was still on, got its hands on a recording of Harvey Weinstein talking to New York Times reporters Jody Kanner and Megan Toohey. This took place in October 2016, two days before Kanner and Toohey dropped their big story that effectively ended Weinstein's career. Let's listen to a little of the sound. You're going to hear some Inside Edition narrator voice. And the reporter's voice you'll hear is Canner, who is my former colleague, full disclosure. We've found a pattern over three decades of allegations of sexual harassment of multiple women. I think you ought to be specific and tell me who they are and if they're on the record. Weinstein tries to challenge their reporting. There are many mistakes you've made. Do you want to identify any of them? I, uh, we, we will. I promise you we will. I'm going to say this nicely. Get the facts right. You're journalists. The now disgraced media mogul tries to defend himself. I'm not a saint, but I'm not the sinner you think I am. The reporters ask Weinstein about actress Rose McGowan, who said she was sexually assaulted by Weinstein in 1997. We know that in 1997, you paid um, $100,000 to Rose McGowan following uh, an encounter in a hotel room. Is there anything that you want to tell us about that? Weinstein refers almost every question to his attorney, Charles Harder. I'll let Charles handle that. I think Charles can respond to that. Charles Harder's frequent response? Yeah, I will get back to you on that. We'll get back to you. Yeah, I'm going to get back to you on all of these things. Weinstein did respond soon after, denying any sexual misconduct. Fascinating, is it not? I would, I would, I would love to hear that for every big piece ever published. Um, a couple things you hear Weinstein doing there. One is saying that they've made mistakes in their reporting. And of course, when reporters are reporting the story like that, that's the thing they fear, that there'll be some little mistake uh, that will undermine the bigger story they're trying to get out there. Yes. Some little yeah. thing that they're missing, some some error. Uh, he is happy to introduce that into their mind, though not tell them what the mistake is, notice. Uh, right. The other thing is just kicking the can down the road as much as he can. My lawyer will get back to you on all this, mm-hmm. <laughs> which do we really think there's going to be like it was, would would be a substantive response from the lawyer on any of this? Probably not. Um, no. But just like, the, don't, the, don't worry, I'll just get back to you on all this, you know? Yeah. And we've seen in other instances and in other, other versions of this, like kind of how the donuts are made stories, especially in the, of this Me Too era, is that there've been instances where, you know, the, the editors in chief will wait uh, endlessly for the high powered accused to, to return with a response. Yeah. The um, Weinstein also says in that Inside Edition piece, so I recommend you watch the whole thing, uh, that he wasn't comfortable with Canner and Tui taping the call. And he insisted he wasn't taping it himself. But one of his employees tells Inside Edition that Weinstein actually asked him to tape the call, which is where this audio comes from. So he's saying, I don't want you to tape this. Uh, they, of course, want to tape it for accuracy and records and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he says, don't, but then secretly, apparently, asks his employee to tape it. Anyway, fascinating stuff. David, this is a weird story from the Department of Journalistic Imposters. You remember that awful shooting in the uh, Santa Fe Springs, Texas high school last year? 10 people died, many more injured. Um, Uh A substitute teacher at the school named David Briscoe was quoted or referenced in the Wall Street Journal, in Time, in CNN. Uh, And today, Monday, there's an amazing piece by Alex Samuels in the Texas Tribune that reveals that, as best anyone can tell, David Briscoe was not in that school at all, was not a substitute teacher. 
uh, has no bearing on any of this. Samuels did some digging and finds no record uh, that he was a substitute, finds his vivid descriptions of hearing loud shots uh, do not match other accounts of the shooting. And, and here's the kicker. Samuel started this story because David Briscoe or someone with his Twitter account DM'd her and offered himself up for a one-year anniversary follow-up article. So (laughs) this person infiltrated the media, allegedly, and then DMs her and says, Hey, you want, Hey, I'm available. If you'd like, if you'd like to write a, 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 you know, one year later piece on this, Wow! but was apparently not in the school at all. Anyway, head over to the Texas Tribune and read that a fascinating story. I've got a small uh, rant. Do we want to call it? We, we were going to talk about rants as Mount Journalism. Do we still want that as the title for this? <laughs> oh, that's fine. Whatever you want to do. Whatever the, the that, rare that sounds case, good. you know, we try, we try not to, we try not to be those kind of uh, media podcasters, but the rare moment where you have to get out the ice axe and climb to the top of the mountain and, and just, uh, just make a point. Here's my point, and, and this is really not a subtweet of anybody because I've seen like six of these this week. It's kind of a subtweet of everybody, actually. Uh-huh. When you leave a journalism job now, why have we gotten to the point where you go to Twitter and announce that you're leaving the job, but you can't say anything about the next job? And right. then like a week later, two weeks later, you have another big Twitter hit where you announce the new job. Can mm-hmm. we just do that in one shot? <laughs> Do we have to officially depart and then sometime later officially join the new media organization? Yeah, but you got to get out there before somebody else scoops you, right? Isn't that the number one rule of journalism that you don't want to have like somebody from some other lesser media organization out there tweeting, like trying to trying to steal some of your shine being like, oh, man, it's really heartbreaking when when great writers like Brian Curtis leave good outlets like The Ringer. I really hope that I really hope that there's not more to the story than meets the eye. I, I don't I don't want to be mean to anybody, but these are not these are not competitive scoops. These <laughs> transactions, uh, nor would mine be, by the way. But these are not competitive. I just LeBron needed only one announcement when he changed teams, right? LeBron did not do farewell Cleveland and then and then a, a week later hello LA. He just needed one time. But journalists somehow need two different media moments. I just I I don't understand I don't I really don't understand what's happening. And <laughs> most people we don't notice if you just dis- if I if I disappeared from the ringer for like a month nobody would be like is everything okay Brian? Nobody would even notice. Yeah. Nobody notices. I don't believe this whole thing of oh there was like a moratorium period where he couldn't talk. No, just 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 do one one time. I will <laughs> take one time. I know your run at whatever website was huge and we'll all remember it, but just, just one, one announcement for both. Anyway, that's it. I'm, I'm descending them out now. <laughs> From the Department of Student Newspapers, David, great piece by Marielle Padilla in the New York Times about a high school newspaper at the Amherst Pelham Regional High School. The writer, his name is Spencer Klitsch, I think. It's spelled like cliche, but I'm going mm-hmm. to go with Spencer Klitsch. Klitsch wrote a 3,000-word piece, Padilla reports in the student paper, uh, that revealed that his high school was using underpaid prison labor to reupholster the seats in the school auditorium. Spencer (laughs) overheard a parent and faculty member talking about this. Uh, He was able to get the contract from the school district. He found another company that paid formerly incarcerated people more money that had actually been shut out of the contract. Uh, and then after his piece ran in the school newspaper, the superintendent stopped using prison labor. So welcome to long form Spencer Klitsch. 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, that that is, let me, let me just say, when I was writing for the high school newspaper, there were not a lot of stories of that magnitude. We're not. I disagree. The Pantherette put out a lot of uh, really top-notch material in your time there. Please, nobody go look. Um, and speaking of cliches or glitches, uh, I was reminded... <laughs> Jacob Weisberg, my old boss, wrote a piece in Slate way back in 1998. You and I have talked about this before. About, One of the great headlines of all time. Yeah, yes, it is. Uh, about the New York Times book review, which was then celebrating its 100th anniversary. And David, would you like to share what the very good pun headline was? Uh, if I remember correctly, it's it's uh, 100 years of lassitude. 100 years of lassitude. Yes, very good. <laughs> <laughs> Weisberg is talking about the New York. There was this kind of like control plus V book review. This is how you write a book review in the New York Times. And he writes way back in 98, the formula is to meander on the general topic for three paragraphs, summarize the book in four more, note a flaw in the penultimate paragraph, and close with an upbeat summation on the order of still, Moon Over Nova Scotia is a valuable contribution to our understanding of the shifting fortunes of Atlantic eel fishing. Okay. That is how you write. And and he even found in this piece that even the New York Times Book Review's <laughs> review of Mein Kampf was written in this form. Yes, there were some there were some bad parts, but so what a contribution to German history, okay? I was reading the book review on Sunday. It was a review of Spying on the South, which is the new and final book by Tony Horowitz, author of The Great Confederates in the Attic, who just died suddenly. Yeah. The review hues almost exactly to the Weisberg formula. This is the penultimate paragraph. Some of the book is predictable. One wishes for more depth and more breadth. The views of a community or business leader would have added perspective. Okay. New graph. Nonetheless, Horowitz has produced a valuable work that combines biography, history, and travel. How, how do people learn how to do this? Do you just read the Times Book Review so much and you just kind of, by osmosis, kind of figure it out? Do we? I mean, I've never written a Times book review. Are we sure that they don't just get written by some sort of like online questionnaire, like a, like a like a Google survey where you fill out the sort of you kind of mad lib your way through a through a review? Please plug in a couple of qualms about the book here. <laughs> yes, and then and then you start to type the fourth the last paragraph, and nonetheless, just comes out on your computer like autofill. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's wild. I always I just always enjoy reading them too because it it really does happen. And again, I don't, I don't know who is doing this other than you, we just read that book reveal all our lives and eventually you start writing like that. <laughs> all right. Uh, it's time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. God damn it. Uh, we, got a, <laughs> we got a good one this week. By the David. way, shout out to Justin Verrier for thinking it was going to be easy last week, huh? Yeah, that was funny. That was funny. Talked to big game. <laughs> Did not guess the strain pun headline. This one comes to us from that guy, Tyler. Uh, mm. And it is a good one. A good headline. Uh, David, there's this thing in New York City where people gather in parks on weekends and they bring their finches. I'm talking about the bird, the finch. And they have singing contests. Okay? You with me so far? And this is in the, the news. Finches are sing- the finches are singing? The or finches the owners are, singing, are singing. Not the owners. Okay. The finches are singing. And this is news because a man who flew to JFK from Guyana was recently busted for smuggling more than 30 finches in his luggage. Each of them was stuffed inside a hair curler. I'm not kidding. Okay. But put aside the smuggling for a second. The New York Post did a big story, a follow-up story, if you will, on the Finches singing contests that are occurring in New York parks. What was the New York Post's strained pun headline? 
on Finch's singing. We're we're, yes. we're skipping we're skipping the smuggling story. Yes, I just just that is I just want to put that in. That's that, why it that was why news. that came up. Yeah, which is I, I'm the, more interested in how this guy was was planning on smuggling twenty Finches. You, you, by the way, there are pictures of the Finch inside the hair curler. I mean, they were literally inside a hair curler. Each, each one. Um, I'll give you the subhead. New Yorkers flock to Finch singing contests amid crackdown. This is this is the front page in the New York Post, by the way. Um, this may be part of the Finch. Finch wing, body part. Beak. Wing. Uh, mm. wing uh, mm. Feather. Mm. Lower. Talon. Mm. Talon show. Mm. Mm. So close. So close. The ta- the America's Got Talon. America's Got Talon. Ah! Yes. Good job. Good headline too now, right? America's got talent. <laughs> I don't immediately go from Finch to Talon, so I, I would I, I'm not I saying that was the bird. best. Yeah, I know. No, it's not your fault. I'm saying like if if it if I'm gonna put talent in my pun headline, I should I hope there's like a, it's a raptor or something, you know. But I'm not gonna <laughs> it, it was a good headline. Yeah, it's but, hard to hard to imagine a finch tearing anything else apart. Anyway, Dave and I are back this Friday with more Press Box. So if you were uh, lighting up used sparklers or simply trying to avoid your family, please join us, will you? For more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. First off, I know your run at whatever website was huge, and we'll all remember. But just um, please, nobody go look. Wait, uh, Is everything okay? It's really heartbreaking when when great writers like Brian Curtis leave good outlets like The Ringer. I really hope that when you die, huh? usually they embalm you and then huh? bury you in a casket and huh? dig you six feet under the ground. Okay. <laughs> so sad. We don't even notice. Yeah. <laughs> I really hope that there's not more to the story than meets the eye. Hey, I'm available if you'd like if you'd like to write a, a, a you know one year later piece on this. <laughs> yeah, sure. It sounds like a secret. People are talking about it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good theory. If, I, if I'm if I'm going to be slightly sympathetic. Oh, oh no! How do people learn how to do this? That is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. I remember, I, like I I I saw it on Twitter and still think it's a joke. I don't quit it, but it worked. It worked. Fascinating.